Welcome to the EAT Podcast. This is episode number 26. I'm your host, Jerry. Tonight, we're going to do a one-on-one interview with a lawyer from the Bazile Law Firm. His name is Gustave Passanate. Uh, it's just going to be a one-on-one. Russ will not be with us tonight. Russ will be on the next episode, which we will be doing on Friday night. Uh, I'm going to bring Gus on the stream, and then we'll get into exactly who he is, what they do, and all that fun stuff. Hey, Gus, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, Jerry. What's going on? Thanks for having me. So Gus is a lawyer from the Bazille Law Firm. The Bazille Law Firm it has offices in New York, Florida, and Texas. Their website is thebazillelawfirm.com. You can contact them by phone by calling the main number at 516-455-1500. You can also email them at info at thebazillelawfirm.com. Their Twitter handle is at OTC Lawyers. To contact Gus directly on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at GPP underscore ESQ. And if you want to contact Gus by email, it's Gus at the Firm.com. Gus, welcome to the EAT podcast. Thanks, Jerry. Um, so uh, I guess we'll talk about a little bit about what my firm does and, and what we do. So um, we're like a boutique corporate practice. Um, not a lot of attorneys, but we do big time things. So we have litigation all across the country. Our main focus is uh, we represent uh, small cap companies, micro cap companies that get into these kind of dirty financing deals. So it inc- includes like convertible promissory notes. Um, we also represent some uh, some uh, some companies in state court over some other alternative financing agreements like merchant cash advances. Um, and then we also have like a transactional side of our practice where we could do M&A work. Um, we'll do restructurings for certain co- uh, companies. Uh, to fix their clap cat table, which is oftentimes destroyed after they get into one of these convertible notes with one of these toxic lenders. Um, and uh, and we do pretty much anything corporate. So looking up, you guys, uh, you got a hundred years experience and <laughs> it looks like you got a great team of people in, in the offices you got in, in, in three different cities. Also saw something about you guys possibly expanding into London and a couple other places as well, Boston and LA down the road, which you guys are expanding. So that's a good thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're growing. We're growing at a fast rate. Um, we're getting a lot of success, obviously. Uh, a lot of the cases that we work on, we're kind of tailing, uh, probably passing at this point, the SEC and a lot of their enforcement actions. Um, and we are, you know, like I said, we're seeing a lot of success. We just had a, uh, a really huge decision at the Court of Appeals, uh, an argument that got shot down too many times to count um, that we just got. And the Court of Appeals, by the way, for people that don't know, it's uh, it's the highest state court in New York. So um, we won a decision, decision up there that actually finally classified the conversion discount under convertible promissory notes as interest. So now you can include that in usury interest calculation, which could declare vo- notes void ab initio and have everybody walk away, right? So if a lender lends somebody half a million dollars and mm-hmm. they, that note gets declared void, they walk away with that half a million dollars, that liability is completely gone off their books. Um, and it's a huge, like, extremely powerful tool for a lot of our wow. clients. Um, and like I said, that was something that no one besides us and maybe a few other people in the country even believed was was correct. Um, and and we uh, we were just pretty successful there. And uh, like I said, we're doing something similar in the securities litigation field uh, on, with the broker-dealer registration issues that I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the podcast. Oh, yeah. But, we will. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we're definitely growing, growing at a fast rate. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully not too fast, but... Yeah, everything's going well. And just someone were to contact you, um, you know, via email, Twitter, however they they contact you. If there's something you guys don't do, you guys have relationships in the in the world where you guys work and and everything. That if it's something you guys don't do, you'll refer someone to a company or a firm that handles or specializes absolutely. in what they need. If you guys yeah, don't do it, absolutely. We have a, a list of Exchange Act attorneys that we work with that we refer a lot of our clients to because we don't do Exchange Act reporting. Um, we have a bunch of, of counsel relationships with other attorneys, pretty much in every aspect of business, whether it be intellectual property or tax 
or anything like that. So we try and keep everything that we can uh, in here. But even if we do refer you out, we probably are going to have a really close relationship with that person too. And obviously trust them just as much as we trust ourselves. Okay. And just a heads up for everybody who's watching and listening. Uh, there is a live chat tonight. The live chat is off screen. Gus and I can can see it. If you have any questions, you can drop them. We will get to them. But just a heads up, if anybody does ask a question about a ticker or a company that Gus's firm is working with or against, obviously for the obvious reason of attorney-client privilege, Gus cannot and will not comment about that company or anything about the case because he just can't. But everyone should know that anyway. But I have to just say it so, so we know. And let's get into it, Gus. So the big thing that everyone seems to be uh, – getting into lately is that rule change the otc sec deadline that, that passed at the end of september it's ruled 15 c 211 and everyone knew it was coming you know otc companies that weren't pink that were you know i don't know if, if they're a scam or you know that seems to be the, the wild wild west and companies are a scam and that just seems to be the the terminology associated with with otc before this happened and it, this rule change was going to weed out all of that Every company was going to have to show that they actually had product, they actually had revenue, they had facilities, everything that was legit with them, they had to eventually show. And in your professional opinion, was this a good thing? Was this a bad thing? We're now about two months into this. As this deadline passed, two months later now, how do you look at everything on your side of things and, and recap it? Was this good or bad? Yeah, so... Uh, just to correct you a little bit, Jerry. So you said um, these companies need to prove revenues, prove operations. It wasn't necessarily that. Remember, they just need to become current reporting. So if they didn't have revenues, they just need to report it. They would just need correct. to report their operations. They just need to become current with their reporting. From my professional opinion, um, and I don't mean to step on anybody's toes if I do, but uh, I mean, it, it seemed to be a good thing in, in hindsight. Um, the SEC has been trying to do this. They've tried to do this before. They tried to do it about 20 years ago, obviously met with a lot of resistance. Um, and really, like the, the purpose of the rule was just like you said, was trying to get rid of those companies that aren't reporting, which mm -hmm. to most people should be a positive thing, right? I mean, if, if a company's not reporting, why aren't they reporting? If you're subject to certain disclosure requirements, make those disclosures and, and you're gonna be you're gonna be on those exchanges. Obviously, it's buyer beware, especially on the OTC markets. It's a risk that you're gonna have to uh, assess when you're purchasing or selling a security on, on one of those exchanges. It's all emerging growth, growth companies. It's all startup companies. They might not have a lot of history. You're, you might be taking a big risk, but you might end up with a big reward, obviously. Um, but in my opinion, it was good. I, I think I think maybe the execution may, may have been flawed a little bit. I know there was a lot of confusion in interpre interpreting a lot of uh, some of the rules, in the OT, uh, especially from the OTC markets. Um, there is always going to be a gray area, especially with uh, a lot of like rules that the SEC brings down. That's why they issue so much guidance. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, in, in my opinion, I, I think it was in, all in all a, a good move. And, um, and also, I mean, and I mean, the biggest change here, right. It, it was, I mean, these companies always needed to do this. It, it's not a new requirement. Um, they were just updating the requirement, right. So the piggyback exception no longer applies. Mm -hmm. uh, and another rule that the, another big thing that they changed is now you can no longer pay a market maker to sponsor you on your form 11 on the, on form 11 that they would need to submit to FINRA which was really the only reason a lot of market makers were doing it. You could pretty much pay to have a public company. You could yeah. pay to, to get get publicly quoted. Um, so to avoid that, now these market makers have to go on their own initiative and start and file this Form 11 with a company they know is reporting and a company that they see faith in, right? So if a, if a market maker is not going to do that, then maybe that isn't such a bad thing for a retail investor. And they're not gonna, then, then that stock's not going to get publicly quoted. You know the market maker didn't just get paid to put it up there, right? So, yeah. so in my professional opinion, I think it's a, I think it's a good rule, and I think a lot of exchange act attorneys would would also agree. I think most attorneys would agree. Um, but uh, I mean, just a little history, uh, like when Pink Limited uh, or Pink Not Reporting first first came out, uh, mm -hmm. the SEC thought they were going to finally do away with all the bad companies, and it was just the it was a complete backfire like the yeah. sec had no idea like oh cool we don't have to report anymore this is awesome right that's how that's how everyone reacted like oh perfect now we have an exchange we can sit on and don't ever have to report yeah um and it was it was just like the complete opposite of what they wanted so sometimes they don't execute things perfectly and don't achieve the goals that they they want to achieve perfectly um but i think the idea behind it was was a good idea like i said maybe there's a flaw the execution was a little bit flawed 
maybe their kinks that could be worked out. Um, but, uh, but I think all in all, I think it was positive. Okay. So we got two questions in the chat and that's going to tie into actually my next question. So the two questions that, that are posted, uh, somebody wrote, what if they did report and they're still not current? And then the next question says, what do you know about the backlog for companies who submitted prior to the deadline and still are not pink limited or pink current? So those two things basically tie into each other. And the question I was going to ask you was basically as the deadline came and went, companies went to the pink mark, uh, went from non-pink or, you know, yield or whatever they were to expert or gray. Now, two months later, we're still wondering what's going on with those companies. So is there a buildup? Was there a buildup and then a backlog? Did they sort through it all? Do you know, is OTC saying, Hey, we're still, they anticipated months and months of a backlog. Has OTC put out anything saying we have this backlog still? We don't have it. What's the current state of these companies that aren't pink yet and you're expecting them to be pink? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question. And we spoke about this earlier too, Jerry. Um, I did, I did all the data I could do. I, uh, I wish I had an answer for that. I, I don't think I do. I, I don't know why exactly, but I think it could be attributable to what I was saying before and how there was, uh, there was some confusion as to the interpretation of the rules. Um, OTC markets never really been easy to get information out of, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And I, another thing we talked about before, Gary, was was that OTC markets themselves are publicly traded. So they need to be careful about what they say, right? Um, yep. They can't just start tweeting things. They can't just say things and go on a podcast and say something, make empty promises. So, you know, I'm sure that there's some thought in that before they say certain things, because, I mean, you're dealing with, like you said, a lot of companies just did this. I, I'm sure they are backlogged. I'm sure they are overwhelmed. and. Um, I was reading said, I think like 2000 companies got kicked, got kicked down. And then, you know, who's showing up late to the party and who wants to, you know, become current right after and who thought that they were going to make it. I know we got a few calls um, because I know sometimes we get mistaken for an exchange act reporting firm. Uh, somebody mm-hmm. that do that. And, you know, there are people calling us on September 26th saying, Hey, can you get this done by tomorrow? <laughs> and you know, <laughs> yeah, so who, knows, sure. who knows what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it stinks that, there's a lot of companies that are stuck in that purgatory. I noticed, I, I mean, I, I was on Twitter and I was engaging with some of my followers that were telling me about it. It was the first time I heard about it, actually. I didn't even realize that there were some companies that became current and complied with everything un, under the Rule 15 Amendment and still mm-hmm. got kicked down and still aren't back up. Um, it's unfortunate and hopefully uh, hopefully that, that gets resolved sooner rather than later. So as you just alluded to, OTC is a publicly traded company that, you know, they, they trade on their on their exchange. And they are tight-lipped. They can't just come on a podcast and, and say what they want or tweet out what they want for obvious reasons. But do you think there should be some kind of maybe public information officer or somebody who comes out with these other companies and says, hey, company XYZ is not pink because of whatever reason? Or, you know, company ABC needs to update, you know, form whatever, and then we'll be on our on our way. Is that a way that they should conduct it? Because that's not the way they do conduct it. And I feel like if they did conduct it that way, the retail shareholder would not be in the dark so much the way they are now. Where they, it's a guessing game. You company could say, "Hey, financials are updated. Audit, it's audited. We're good to go. We're waiting on them." And if OTC came out and said, "Well, that's not really the case. We're waiting on A, B, and C from this company, and they're dragging their feet," we Mm -hmm. would know. So. Has that ever been discussed or would that ever be allowed? I mean, obviously it would, it would open up a Pandora's box, so to speak, about the inside world of things. But it would also give us or the retail investor insight on what actually is going on and what a holdup is or, or isn't. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure if, if that's ever been thought of or considered by the OTC markets. Um, but I do know that when, um, just from my personal experience, I know that when Let's say, uh, when, like I've had clients that have been trying to, uh, you know, hop up, you know, not necessarily up list, but go from like the, you know, the pinks to the the QB or something. Um, and sometimes they, you know, OTC takes a little while to respond to them and they're doing mm-hmm. everything right. And uh, they're trying to do everything right. They're trying to get guidance. And sometimes they're not so clear in their guidance, but sometimes it's because their guidance isn't so clear with the SEC. Um, and... It's uh, I don't know. I, that's a, that's a really good question about the whole like public 
voice yeah. about you know the status yeah. of this, especially in a time like this where there is so much confusion and there is this could be potentially affecting so many people that have shares in some of these companies that are stuck in that purgatory that yep. is a really good question i wonder um i wonder what kind of like re reporting concerns they might run into some issues about certain reporting and then especially discussing not only their own company but other companies too as well i'm sure the liability probably just outweighs uh any potential reward that they can get from talking about that stuff so yeah, I mean, that's why it's, it's probably not so public and they're tight-lipped about everything. Yeah, I I haven't had a good experience about them. I've discussed this on the podcast before. I mean, I, I, I contacted them asking them to come on the show and discuss the rule and the deadline and everything else. And they basically asked a bunch of questions like who I am, what I do, uh, who the audience is, what our website is, all this personal stuff. And then the final question was, hey, are you guys going to be compensating us for coming on? And that put the kibosh on everything that was that was the end of that i mean i'm not paying anybody for a guest i'm not paying a guest to come on the show if you want to come talk about things and inform the world on you know your business or your company or you know a sector or anything sure come on and talk but i'm not paying ott markets to come talk to us and that that put the kibosh on it they were nice enough to answer a few questions in an email about promotion and a couple other things but they're very tight-lipped and you know they weren't coming on to speak so i have my my own personal feelings about them but we got a couple other questions in the chat i want to get to real quick so yeah. Somebody's asking, is there a reason why other countries, such as Canada, can trade expert market or gray market stocks, but the United States, where the companies are based, the investor is locked out? So basically, like E-Trade or, or you know, TD Ameritrade won't allow you to buy XYZ company that's, that's you know, gray or, or dark. Why can you do that in Canada? Do you know? I have no idea. That's a really good question. Um, there might be certain laws that apply in Canada that might not apply here. Um, but I'm not even, I'm not sure. I've never even, uh, never experienced that one. Yeah. I, think I, guess only, I do, I do litigation. So, um, if you the want only, me to, uh, what was the only, the only brokerage that I think allows you to do that is like interactive brokers is what I've seen. I mean, there's okay. not, and there's not even that many that allow you to trade these, these stocks. So you look at, you know, right. XYZ company or ABC company that's great right now. Mm -hmm. the, the volume in a day is like 3 million. And that's only because it's based on a, a foreign, foreign uh, buying and selling. It's not even, you know, us based. Right. It's just not happening. Yeah. But there's gotta be an sec law or rule or something in place that there we just might don't know be, about. Yeah. I mean, there might be some, who knows? I mean, there could be something, there might be you know, Canada's version of the sec, whatever that is. I have no idea. Um, they might have some kind of exchange enforcement agency or something. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It's a good question. So, I mean, obviously, in, in the world that we trade in today, CEOs and social media seem to go hand in hand. And, and I guess it's easier to just drop a tweet as opposed to, you know, putting out a full PR. I, but so a company can go on social media, whether it's Twitter, Reddit, you know, Facebook, wherever, or even a podcast like mine or anybody else's. And they'll say we have an endorsement deal coming down the line, you know, a week from now or whoever. And it's going to be. XYZ athlete or you know singer or whoever we can't tell you who but it's in that that area and then a few days later a few months later there's no announcement there's nothing that, that happens or company comes out and says hey we got a retail distribution deal with a big retailer and you know they'll they'll imply it could be like a big supermarket or you know Amazon or a big online retailer or somebody and then nothing happens so these companies put out these these statements nothing happens obviously the share price goes up through the roof you know, you and me, who's the retail trader, will buy the stock based on this news because you think something big is coming. And now nothing comes, you know, months later. And basically, you, the stock price now has dropped beyond what you bought it at. You're quote unquote holding a bag and you have no, no nothing. You're sitting there at a loss. What rights does a shareholder have at this point where you were basically sold on a bill of goods and it never came to fruition and now you're at a loss? Yeah. So in that scenario, that's uh, that's just plain securities fraud. So a shareholder would have to, you know, commence an action for securities fraud against whoever made that statement and how they made that statement. Um, security fraud fraud is tricky for a few reasons. Reasons, um, mm -hmm. obviously, it's expensive litigation, right? So if you don't have a huge case, if there's not a huge pool of damages, there wasn't a lot of harm that was caused. No one's taking that on contingency, and you got to lay out the cost yourself. And sometimes maybe the costs might not uh might not be worth the um, reward at the end obviously 
Um, so basically, you'd commence an action. You'd allege that they had a they made a material misrepresentation, which in a scenario like that, right? Somebody comes on a podcast and says, "Oh, I'm going to have Odell Beckham Jr. sign on to this brand, right? So some kind of brand for something." Uh -huh. And they do that, and they're a publicly traded company. That's obviously a material misrepresentation. If as long as they know, and and then another another element of securities fraud is that this mental element of it. So the person making that statement needs to know that what they're saying is false. Um, know and intend to make the statement that it was false false or you need to allege some kind of motive for them to make it false right um so sometimes if they make these statements and they're let's say talking to somebody or like they might have been able to get that that person they weren't mm -hmm. necessarily lying so okay and sometimes they'll tiptoe around what they say and you'll notice that a lot of times especially CEOs, um, like, you know, on Twitter or something, right? Like they're not gonna, they could, they could use puffery. They could kind of sell themselves a little bit and, and, you know, be salesmen, right. And, and say things, um, but yeah, it needs yeah. to be obviously material, um, and it needs to be a fact. So what was that? If a company comes out and says, our intention is to do this. Yeah, sure. I intend for my podcast to have a million <laughs> listeners every, every week. I know yeah. that's not happening. I, you know, yeah. this is just a hobby and it's fun for me and you know, it yeah. is what it is, but my yeah. intention is for this to be the biggest show in the world. Right. It's a great, it's a great statement. And a yeah. CEO could say that too. They intend for their company right. to sign this big deal, exactly. have these big revenues and that's their intention. But Hey, you know what? Anyone can intend to do anything exactly. that's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. That's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> yeah, that's how they tiptoe around what they say. It's, it's, I mean, securities fraud is hard. It's always been hard, um, really hard. Like I said, it's super expensive, um, really hard to plead. There's a crazy stat out there um, because, because any, any fraud action, it needs to be pled, pled and pled mm -hmm. by, by pled. I mean, uh, what's stated in the complaint, the complaint just consists of the allegations that's going to set forth a cause of action, right? So it's just facts. What did this person do? And you need to be able to put them on notice of which parts of their conduct that you believe entitles you to something, right? Okay. So when you have any kind of fraud action, whether it's a common law fraud, wire fraud, securities fraud, whatever fraud it is, you're subject to this heightened pleading standard in every single federal court. And I'm pretty sure in every single state, uh, they have similar requirements under like their procedural rules. This heightened pleading requirement makes it very, very difficult to withstand a motion to dismiss. Very, very difficult. Like there's a, like a, there's this crazy stat. I want to say it's around 70% get dismissed. The ones that do stick, they're amended four or five times, okay. right? You know, they, get, they get dismissed four or five times and the fifth one sticks because they were yeah. able to plead. Right? It's very, very hard to do. Granted, um, I'm not saying it never happens, but usually it's, it's, it's very difficult to do. Um, so that's another reason why a lot of firms aren't willing to take on that kind of work. Uh, so unless you have an open shut, something that you know that you could plead, no mm -hmm. one's going to put that kind of effort into just a complaint, right? And no attorneys are going to do that. And especially if the pot isn't that big at the end. Yeah. If you only have, like, you know, I think and we, another thing we discussed was, was about all of these OTC companies, right? There's not a lot of people in, in, that are invested in these stocks. There's not a lot of money that, you know, I, I'm not saying that your harm doesn't matter, but if your harm, your pool of harm, is only a million dollars, but at the pool of harm about somebody, uh, Elon Musk making some kind of misrepresentation, the Tesla shareholders, right? The market cap gets yep. destroyed. Destroyed. And yep. Somebody <laughs> and all those shareholders, they have a pool of six hundred million dollars that they could, you know. Yeah, and you got hedge that. funds and everything else involved. It's yeah. not just the regular retail guy. Exactly. You know, like you at OTC. Exactly. Yeah. Right. A retirement fund. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All. Yeah. So there's there's just a different. It's just like a different game. Especially on the OTC markets, um, and not only that. I mean, that, those are those are those are just private remedies. I know somebody in the chat just said, you know, what's the what's the backlash? But the backlash yeah. is, of course, the SEC could always go. Of course, the SEC always has that opportunity. But another thing that we discuss is it's, it's the SEC, right? They're not. There's there's eleven thousand companies publicly traded or something like that. There's some outrageous number, not yeah, not outrageous, but there's a lot of things that they would need to watch, right? The SEC just doesn't have the resources. To enforce every single wrongdoing they just yeah. don't it's just not possible to cover every single time every single time something goes wrong and when something does go wrong it's going to be oh okay who are we going to focus on that nasdaq you know those nasdaq shareholders the shareholders of a company that trade on the nasdaq that lost 600 million dollars due to something due to some kind of misrepresentation or some kind of fraud let's say or the uh 
the shareholders of some kind of some pink you know, company trading on the pink sheets that has yeah. a market cap of $11 million and the damage, the total harm was like half a million dollars. Right. So, you know, they're going to go obviously to the biggest fire and put that one out. And, as, uh, as bad as that sounds though, because people lost money yeah. either way, whether it's 600 million or half a million, yeah, no, someone lost money. Not, yeah, absolutely. And that the, I'm not discrediting those losses at all on the OTC. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do. <laughs> that's my job. Yeah. I represent those. Like I, I represent those companies. I see it all the time. Um, and, and they're, like I said, they're lacking enforcement. That's why they're firms like mine. And there's not many firms like mine. Like, we're one of the only firms that do this in the whole country that do what we do. Um, and it's for that reason, there's not much money in this, unfortunately, mm -hmm. sometimes, right? Like, you know, if they, they could foot the bill for a little bit and then sometimes it just gets to a point where they can't fight anymore because they're going up against a way bigger fish yeah. almost every single time. So it's tough. Um, and, and, and of course our clients are fighting, like they're, they're going to fight. Right. And, and that's why we kind of not selectively choose our clients, but like we tell our clients like, hey, you're not hiring us to settle. We're going, you know, we're taking this all the way. We're going to see what like we're not going to we're not you, you don't hire us to settle. You don't hire us to send a letter and say, you know, hope that we get out of this in, in the right way. Like we're building a reputation like that. So. Um, so it's tough. There's a lot of there's a lot of factors. And I could talk about this probably all night, but yeah. OK. Uh, keeping with the social media theme, uh, you have influencers. You want to call them pumpers. I mean, people have words for them. There's, there's Discord chats. There's Wall Street bets on Reddit. Uh, like you just said, the SEC is going after the big fish. But you get a group of people big enough. Wall Street bets is what you know, twelve million people or thirteen, whatever, whatever it is yeah, now. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen it in, in you know a few weeks, but it's huge. So you get a group of people like that involved, and you start buying and selling or playing options or shorting or whatever. A, a, a company, you know, GameStop for argument's sake, or BlackBerry or Nokia, or any of those other ones that were on that list. You know, you see the price action go through the roof from $7 to 400 and whatever it was. Obviously, it's got to get the SEC's attention, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they, they know what's going on, but should they be doing more? Or is, is there stuff going on behind the scenes that we just don't see or hear? No one's leaking anything? Like, yeah. what's the SEC doing with all of that? Because you get 15 million people in a chat room on Reddit, they're going to, you know, manipulate or influence a security or two. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The um, so. So the thing is, with with the SEC and pretty much any federal agency, they're very, very secretive. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. you don't know what they're doing. Right. And they'll investigate something for a year before they commence an enforcement action. OK. And investigate for two years. Um a good idea, something that we do, um, is, is we put in a lot of FOIA requests against some of the hedge funds that we deal with, and um, and they'll respond. Either they'll respond and say, hey, we have no information, or they respond and say, hey, we can't give you any information we have, right? And one at that point, you know something, the other one does. So you know where I'm going with this. Yep. They're going to be very secretive, but it, it, just because they're being secretive doesn't mean they're not doing anything. Um, they work hard. They work a lot. And the people that do that are pretty passionate. I mean, I deal with the SEC a lot on some of the broker dealer registration issues that I, uh, I discuss and we work hand in hand. Like we're, we're always talking to people from the SEC, um, out of the different regional offices, depending on where the hedge fund is or the, the lender is that we're dealing with or that we're mm -hmm. instituting litigation against or defending, uh, one of our clients against. So we do, we do work, work a lot with them. And they're swamped. I mean, they they can't even breathe. They say every single time they can't even breathe. They're like, all right, thanks guys. But you sent us 15 other ones last week. We'll get to when we get to it. And that's just the stuff that we do, you know. And then and like I said, you know, the stuff that we do in the OTC markets. We were talking about this earlier, Jerry. It took almost 10 years for these convertible notes to start getting uh, for the SEC to kind of get wind get wind of it and actually start devoting resources to it. And say okay yep. this is really a problem let's let's do something hey you know like i mean they're they're executing these notes they're acting as dealers they're not registered to do it um and something we'll get into more later on um, yeah we will but yeah it's 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 tough now one of the biggest things that that hit you know finchwood or financial twitter however you want to word it lately was the alex delarge whose real name is stephen gallagher uh his arrest so it came out a few weeks ago that he was he lives in Ohio. He's got 70,000 Twitter followers. He was charged with securities fraud, wire fraud, and market manipulation in a Manhattan federal court. Basically used his Twitter handle, which was Alex the Large, 
And the suit alleged that he earned over a million dollars in profits while many of his followers were left holding a bag. The suit continued to say that he made false and misleading statements. He engaged in a series of transactions designed to artificially raise the price of a, of a share, uh, the share price of a stock well after he was out of it. So, you know, XYZ company, he bought and told everyone about it. Now as the price is going up, he basically sold it and left people holding a bag. Um, you know, deceptive practices and all this other stuff that was going on. When you see something like this, does it make you cringe? I mean, yeah. obviously this is, this is happening a lot more than we see. Yeah. You know, not everyone in their mom is getting arrested in this in for these crimes yet, but it can happen tomorrow or a month from now, or whatever. I'm sure it's being investigated. But when you see something like this, where the guy makes a million and now, you know, X number of you know Twitter followers or whoever are left holding a bag and crushed, does it make you cringe? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is uh, I mean, this is, I guess is just the, the day and age that we live in, right? I mean, when you have when you could build, you know, build a network or maybe not a network, but build a following um, mm -hmm. out of your house, right? And yeah, mom's basement. Obtain, yeah, mom's basement <laughs> and obtain influence over as many people, you know, seventy thousand people that he was able to influence. Yeah. I mean, how how could you stop that? Yeah, how could you preemptively stop it? I'm not saying there's nothing you can do afterwards, right? And and it's always nice to see the SEC jumping on things, especially like this. They're so current and and you know, going after um disgorgement and the profits that he made so that's one thing um i don't know a lot of if a lot of people know the sec has a lot of different powers and private litigants do the sec has way more power than i could than anything i could assert on behalf of my client privately um one one of those big things which is what they're seeking in this lawsuit is uh is disgorgement so they could obtain all the profits that he made a private litigant can never do that okay can never obtain the profits that he made you can uh you, know, you can obtain the harm that you were caused mm -hmm. but the sec can go after everything Right. So they kind of drop a little bit heavier of a hammer than, than I, than, you know, so, we could drop, a private attorney, could, a private litigant could drop. They, so, they're basically freezing your bank account, taking your house oh, out yeah. from under you, taking your cars, mm -hmm. taking your boats, everything else. And you're basically in a cardboard yeah. box, you know, yeah. in the middle of the oh, park. Yeah. No, yeah. They, they don't mess around. <laughs> yeah. They'll freeze your bank account two days after they slap you with the lawsuit. Yeah. They do not mess around. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's good that they're, they're, uh, you know, taking action on it. I think it's right. uh, it's important to stop, especially this stuff on Twitter. I mean, it's getting almost out of hand. I see stuff. It's constant, right? I mean, I'm not even really in the space as much because I go on Twitter to interact with people um, in like a very kind of like limited scope. I mean, if people are trading off of information they're going on, you know, seeing on Twitter, which I know a lot of people do and a lot of people are, it's, uh, I mean, that's. A lot of people are doing it. And, you know, I, I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to, I don't even want to, but there are people out there that have, two, three, four, 500,000 followers. You know, they have a chat room in, on Discord with 300,000 people involved and these things happen. I mean, it, you see it. If you're a part of it, you know it's out there. The SEC has to be aware of it. It, it just has to be. And people are posting pictures on Twitter, you know. They're in this house. They're on this boat. They're on this vacation. You know that what's going on. You, you know what they're doing. It's only a matter of time until these guys get caught. Everyone's going to get caught eventually. It's just yeah. a matter of time. Absolutely, yeah. Time. So let's get into some uh, let's get into fraud, market manipulation, dilution. This this is a hot topic. I mean, you put out a couple of tweets. The the law firm itself put out a couple of tweets, and you know it, it kind of caught a little bit of fire. But what can you tell us about about it? And I I know it's a lot. So market manipulation, dilution, market makers, counterfeit shares, convertible notes, toxic debt. I mean, there's a whole a whole way to go about this. I mean, we could talk about it for an hour just on this alone. But what can you tell us about it? Like. So market manipulation, it happens, you know, it, it happens out there every day. What, what is a sign of it? What should you be looking out for? How do you avoid it? Yeah. Um, so what, what we, uh, my firm like uh, litigates a lot of is these uh, broker dealer registration cases. It's kind of, it's really complicated. The main, main takeaway that I think retail investors should know is mm -hmm. that it looks like market manipulation. It looks like counterfeit shares. If you see, trading volume just spike for three or four days and then just go back down. All of a sudden the outstanding shares increased by 600 million shares out of nowhere over the span of three months or four months, there's mm -hmm. probably something going on. Right. And I think a lot of people, a lot of retail investors, at least from, from my experience and, and engaging with followers uh, and people on Twitter that I discuss, uh, you know, try and discuss this stuff with it's, um, 
a lot of people get this idea of, of them being counterfeit shares. So to understand the the security, a convertible security, a convertible note, let's say it's a security, right? Um, a, a lender or hedge fund, right? They'll purchase this note from an issuer, usually an OTC mm -hmm. issuer, at least the toxic ones, right? With these steep discounts to market, uh, floorless convertible, um, cashless conversions under warrants and things like that. Just mm -hmm. repulsive agreements, like seriously repulsive. That's like the best word to use to describe them. And um, so when that, that hedge fund or that lender will purchase the note, they will acquire debt from the company or the whole debt of the company, I, I apologize. Mm -hmm. The whole debt from the company. And the way that they get that debt repaid is by converting the debt into stock. They convert that debt into newly issued stock. Every time they put through a conversion notice, new stock's coming out, coming out of the yep. reserve. So there's new stock entering the market every single time conversion notice is coming out. Not only is new stock coming out, it's not coming out one-to-one. -one. They're converting it with a 40, 50, 60% discount to market based on the three lowest trading prices of the preceding 20, day, 20 trading days prior to the notice conversion that was submitted, right? Which is so crazy. whatever a lender might do, yeah, exactly. So discount to market really might be more than 20% the day that they get yeah. the conversion. What a lot of people might do, and if they get no, you know, get a hint of like, oh, hey, there's going to be a lot of shares in the market soon. Like, what's going to happen, right? What happens when there's a lot of shares for sale? It's yeah, it's going to plunge. <laughs> yeah. What does everyone want to do when it plunges, right? They want to take short positions. Just because then you, the get, then you get more shares at a cheaper cost. I mean, look at it. You exactly, because the, the, the market plunges and plunges right? and plunges, and instead of you being Instead of you getting the, the original deal that you thought you were getting, right. you're getting a better deal at the cost of uh, exactly. all this money that just that just crashed. Exactly. So that being said, that in itself might be market manipulation. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a good shot that we could, that you could probably state a claim for market manipulation based on some of like the, just the kind of personal thoughts that I think that these lenders do just mm -hmm. because of the mechanisms, the conversion mechanisms, like why wouldn't you take this position? Because then you're gonna make $10 million on a $50,000 financing. So that's Heck why- of a return. <laughs> yeah, right? So now we do. So I, uh, I, think, I think that would probably be a sufficient cause of action to state. What yeah. I think though, um, and what my firm, the position that we take is, is, is dealing with this broker dealer registration or lack thereof really. Mm -hmm. um, so engaging in this practice, buying, selling securities for your own account, you're acting as a dealer, right? And when you're doing this to 80 million shares every two weeks to 15 different issuers, you're a dealer and you need to register as one. And you, you need, need to be licensed, insured, you know, like driving a car. You need to have yeah, your affairs in order. <laughs> you need to be, you need to be getting watched by like FINRA needs to have an eye on you. The SEC mm -hmm. needs to have an eye on you. That's what dealers have to do. So um, and, and I just want to kind of track back to what I was talking about earlier, um, fraud and remember how I, I was discussing fraud and fraud has a heightened pleading standard. So does market yes. manipulation. So it is kind of hard. It's a little bit easier to plead market manipulation because you don't have to necessarily plead facts that wouldn't be known to the plaintiff, right? So if they're taking short positions, you'd never know what their trading records are. So you could mm -hmm. just plead that they're taking short positions. Um, and you could plead that they're influencing the market and you could just point to the contract for like to allege Sienta, right? Because if you know their contract's market adjustable, um, the conversion mechanism is market adjustable, and there's a discount to the 20, no, let's say a three-day uh, three average. And these are all slightly different, by the way. Sometimes mm -hmm. these terms, it might be the 15 days preceding, it might be the lowest price instead of an average of the three-day. So it's it, they're all a little bit different sometimes, but they're all mostly the same, for the most part. The, the substance of them are the same. And... Um, when uh, you, you make that allegation, you, you need a little bit less information. You need to be a little bit less specific, right? Because you can only plead the information that you'd have access to. So it's a little bit easier, but it's still heightened. When you plead a violation of, for example, Section 15A of the Exchange Act for somebody mm -hmm. acting as a dealer or engaging in uh, security transactions as a dealer, and they're not registered as such, that's just a regular cause of action, right? Yeah. And then there's relief. That's grant uh, that's allowed under the Exchange Act. There's Section 29B, which allows for uh, private litigants to obtain relief, either void the contract as a whole, or mm -hmm. um, void void it as uh, void the rights of the enforcer. Right. So so you know on the def on the defensive side, 
right? You, you kind of put up a shield and say, hey, you can't enforce this. Or on mm -hmm. the attack side, you try and void it. So whether we're, you know, our clients are plaintiff or a defendant, we have a little bit of a slightly different position, but the arguments are the same. You're acting as a dealer, you're engaging these securities transactions, you're acquiring shares at a discount to market, you're selling those shares right afterwards. You're purchasing yeah. the promissory note itself. That's a securities transaction. Convertible notes, a securities transaction. That's a security. You're mm -hmm. purchasing that note. You're converting under it. You're selling under it. And who knows what they're doing in between, right? And <laughs> you're still like, you know what I mean? Hop on so, lights to Vegas for all we know. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the position that my firm takes, and we think it's a really good position. Um, and and it, it pains me to see all of the shareholders they interact with on Twitter because I can't really stick up for them because you don't have, you know, a shareholder might not have standing. Mm -hmm. Although, um, so kind of side note, Jerry, I, I do want to mention this for anyone on Twitter that might be watching. There's, uh, my firm did actually post a press release and have a, uh, a Q&A and we posted on Twitter and we put out a lot of feedback because we were actually interested in possibly gathering, you know, trying to certify a class uh, for okay. one of these manipulation schemes that we believe was going on. Mm -hmm. And when we put out feelers, I mean, we had, we shared it to all of our Twitter followers. I think we had like 4,000 followers on Twitter or something on the firm's Twitter. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people um, that we, we got it out to and we got a dozen responses. And out of the dozen, we had five people that actually uh, were able to um, express some kind of harm that was caused to them. So, so that so wasn't we, a successful thing. It wasn't successful, which is why we no. never moved forward with the investigation. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up. So, cause I, I do see there's, there's a decent amount of people um, leaving comments on the side. So, so if the, we would the, do that. The comments that are there. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about specific tickers, which I'm, some of them, I don't, for my own reason, I don't want to get involved in, cause I don't know if your firm is involved in them or not. I mean, you can see them. I mean, if you want to point out a ticker or two that you see that you can talk about, great. If, if not, I don't want to bring it up and then have you say, Oh, I'm, I'm working on something with them. And then, you know, Anyone right. be tipped off that you're, yeah. you're doing something. So I mean, you see the you see the few tickers that are being mentioned. Yeah, yeah in, I see. I, I was just talking in terms of just volume. I just see a lot of people kind of messaging, and I wanted to just put that out there. Like, like um, you know, we put feelers out there, and we're not opposed to trying to certify a class and commencing a class action against one of these people. Because, like I said, I think we're talking about this before, Jerry, and these manipulation schemes. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I think they run far and wide. Right, a broker's oh, yeah. going on. Right when they put that conversion notice in, and who knows what the broker's going to do, right? Um, a market maker might notice, oh, hey, it's conversion going through, right? They have three days to clear. Okay, what are we going to do in those three days? What do you want to do? You know what they're going to do. In, you know what they're going to do in those three <laughs> yeah, days. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to tell their friends. Tell their friends. Yeah, you know what's going to happen. Right? <laughs> exactly. So that's what I think it runs that deep. Who knows? I mean, we've okay. never gotten. You know, I've never gotten to uh, to you know un uncover any of that stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I absolutely believe that that goes on and we're absolutely willing to certify a class. But last time we did, you know, we tried to do that. We just didn't get a lot of feedback. So that's why I just kind of wanted to bring that up. I saw there's a lot of people here. And if we do put out something like, uh, like that again, um, I would love for like, you know, a lot of the people that I engage with on Twitter to, you know, interact with it and, and try and put it together. We need, we need people, you know, if, if we can get people together, we're absolutely not opposed to investigating for a class action um, based on exactly what I'm talking about today. Okay. Because I think that's where it's it's rampant, especially on the OTC markets, um, especially with the bunch of tickers that I see right now. I, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say specifically, but absolutely, there's some of these tickers are getting annihilated by uh, these toxic debt holders. So, a question that is in the chat is: Do you foresee what do you foresee as a typical time frame for a company to have toxic debt removed slash reversed? Is there a typical time frame for this to to come to fruition, or no? I think that's a that's a kind of hard question to ask. It's a pretty fact intensive question to ask, and by that I mean it kind of depends on the scenario. Um, there are times that um, we'll get engaged, and the lender wants absolutely nothing to do with us, and they mm -hmm. fold. So I mean that's happened to us before, and they've walked away in literally three days, and nothing we got our client out of a uh, couple million dollar liability, and it was just because the reputation that we have, right? Because we're not here to settle; <laughs> we're here to. Yeah. Yeah, we're here. You know, we're not here to settle. Yeah. So, um, so it it really depends. I mean, if you go through litigation, it could be years. You know, there's no telling. Uh, there's no telling. And for a lot of these people, they're not fighting for this case. They don't. They don't care about the money they might lose here. 
They care about mm -hmm. their, their business model, right? So the precedent yeah. that this case is going to set, it's worth more than the $200,000 or $300,000 note that they might have bought. It's worth way more than that to them. So they have no problem spending a million dollars on litigation for a $200,000 note. And it might sound crazy, but in reality, this is how they're making hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, the, right? the million dollars and the 200000 is nothing down the line. The, and the, they will the rainbow, at the end of the rainbow, it's $100 million or whatever yeah. it is. They will go out and hire the most expensive law firm that they could possibly find. That law firm will put out publications discussing the issues, right? And try and garner public influence, like, and they will do everything they can. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's way deeper than just the, the case at hand for all of the lenders because they don't do it one time. They don't do it two times. So it's all uh, over again. Yeah. Yeah. So it's big to them. So if, if you, you know, you run into somebody like that, who does, this is their life, they're going to fight tooth and nail, even if it's not a big note, it's not a big financing, they will absolutely fight. Um, and also it depends a lot of these, a lot of clients, um, that I deal with, at least there's a lot of, uh, a lot of them have a lot of convertible debt because, mm -hmm. you know, they'll enter into these financings in general, the same lender, excuse me, the same lender will be like, the next month, be like, oh, hey, you want another hundred grand? You want another three hundred grand? Same terms. Cha -ching. Cool. Cha -ching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so before, before, okay. So something, something that's relevant to this. There's something called Rule One Forty Four, and uh, it deals with you know the sale of uh, exempt securities, right? So they can't sell any of the stock that they would acquire through a conversion for six mm -hmm. months. So okay. you'll know. It, this is a telltale sign. If if that stock, if, if a company that you have shares in, if their stock all of a sudden the volume starts, you know, acting funky after six months in one day, you know for sure that it's convertible debt that's on their books. Go into a filing and go find it. Go, you know, go go find it. If, that if they debt. have filings, if they don't have filings and they're not right, reporting, right. then you're not you're not going to see that. Exactly. 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 But yeah, that's, that's a telltale sign, right? Because they wait six months, convert it, sell it. Yeah, and, and cash out. Free, making whatever <laughs> they want, right? So they try and get into as many financings with that company before the six months hit, before the company realized like, oh, wait a second, we're not going to survive this. This isn't mm -hmm. going to, like, our, there's no way we could sustain that kind of volume. There just isn't, right? You're on the OTC. There's just not, there's just not that kind of volume there. You can't sustain yeah. it. So it's uh it's not uncommon for a lender to to purchase three four five convertible notes in the span of a month or two um and then sometimes also have their friends who are other hedge funds and other lenders do the same exact thing say hey you know i just bought 300 grand worth of this guy you know he's still probably you know he, he doesn't know yet it hasn't been six months we haven't we haven't tanked this thing yet so why don't you get into yeah and then before you know it, it those three deals turn into 15 deals exactly. and the three hundred thousand turns into you know several million dollars later and the stock is crushed six months later and people are left, you know, holding a bag and, exactly. and worse. Exactly. So yeah. An, another question in the chat relating to convertible notes. Um, are there time limits on convertible notes? And if so, do they differ from state to state where the company is being held? Um, time limits. So I'm not sure what that might be in reference to, but if, if you're talking about uh, time limits in reference to the amount of, like the period of time that they last until maturity, maybe. Um, so there's a maturity date on it because it is a note. Okay. The maturity date is, uh, it's pretty much useless because a lot of these companies don't have the cash to pay at the maturity date. And of course they know that. And anyway, they make the maturity date a year out anyway. They start converting okay. it to months. Um, I see statute of limitations in the chat. If that's what yeah. they're talking about. Uh, so under 29B, there's technically no statute uh, no statute limitations for 15A violations. There are statute limitations in 29B, but they're they're related to other sections of the Exchange Act, not under 15A. And if you think about it, it makes sense because in the event that like a note's void, right? The, the notes are, like the transactions illegal. It mm -hmm. would be pretty stupid for the SEC to allow people to walk away as long as they just hold out for three years, right, or five years. So it's like, oh, it's illegal, but only for this period. No, it's always illegal. It's always going to be illegal. So there's no, there's no statute of limitations. Um, of course, 
there we we run into those arguments a lot um but it's we haven't it's not an issue someone else in the chat is asking about online publications and the example they use the seeking alpha um they'll publish articles with little or no relevant information that bashes the stock what are your thoughts on those um it is uh i mean it's probably just like any other basically yeah. like when a company puts out a short report you know that we know well, what the we know what the motivation is or the angle that they're they're you're, they're going for whether it's written in a positive or negative way someone has an angle with whatever they're putting out there right of course yeah um but of course like the depending on if you're an agent if it's the company itself speaking or not the company speaking there are obviously different rules and regulations around that so i mean i, th I think generally yeah it's uh it's probably like you said it's there's probably a motive behind it um but with respect to you know some kind of punishment like I said, it's it's hard it's hard for people to get punished for doing things like that, especially as an outsider. That's why I mean, honestly, the the Alex DeLarge thing is kind of somewhat surprising because he wasn't even uh, an outsider, but I guess because he was affecting so many people and it was so blatant and right in, right in people's faces, it was uh, something SEC took notice of. The person who posted that comment just further made a comment further on their original thought, saying, "People are writing articles." The people writing the articles pay a fee to publish on the website, so there's mm -hmm. a motivation. It's motivation behind it with some kind of pay, uh, paywall or pay fee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that giveaway of that, right? You don't pay to do nothing. <laughs> so let me ask. Let me ask you about um, share cancellation. That seems or share retirement. You know, buybacks. That seems to be a big. Uh, I don't even know if catalyst is the right word, but you see companies in the OTC all the time say, "We're eliminating buying back." Where you know, canceling, retiring 500 million shares, a billion shares, whatever the number, the number is down the line. I would, the company has to contact the transfer agent. The transfer agent has to then contact OTC markets. OTC markets would then update their website with the authorized share, the outstanding share, the float, everything that's on that, that checklist. When you look at a security on the OTC, let's say six months goes by and a company six months ago put out, Hey, we're retiring X number of shares off the, uh, off the count. That never happens. Is there any uh, legal route to go about this? Is that, you know, can a company just put out, hey, we're retiring a billion and it never happens. So obviously the stock goes up for whatever reason. Now, you know, shares are never retired and everyone thinks they were going to be retired and it didn't happen or won't happen. Is yeah. there some, some, some discourse with this where, you know, shareholders are hopefully uh, can get some money back or something? Yeah, I would happened. say the route for that is also securities fraud. I mean, that's if that's a blatant material misrepresentation if in the event that that doesn't go through. And that's certainly something that would influence a stock price in connection with, you know, purchase or sale of a security. So mm -hmm. if, uh, if, if that's something that's going on, yeah, absolutely. I think that's certainly something that could be um, pled with securities fraud. But like I said, you know, those the same hurdles apply. Securities fraud will always be a very difficult, um, dif difficult way, way to recover. Gus, let me ask you, how long have you been at the law firm? And on top of that, after you answer that, what is a typical case like for you at the firm where how does it you know play out where retail investor myself or whoever will call you and say, hey, I have this kind of problem. Let's sit down and discuss it. And, you know, you go through your background check, you go through your research, you go to your trial or, you know, serving the other company or the security or whoever, whatever the reason. What is the uh, how long have you been a lawyer? And then on top of that, how does the typical case play out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I uh, I've been here for a little over a year now. Um, mm -hmm. The securities stuff really is ramped up recently because it has been it's very recent. Like I said, with all these SEC enforcement actions, I mean, just uh, just I want to say it was like within the last two months, um, the very first dispositive decision on this dealer issue only got issued in June. I think it was June of 2020. Right. So that's very, very recent for other courts to kind of just hop on the bandwagon. And I think that might be a reason for a lot of courts uh, hesitating on making decisions as to the dealer issue. Mm -hmm. So um, it is, like I said, like a really new issue, but but every day we get updates. So within the last two months, that very first case, it's called a SEC fee Almagarby. Um, this guy was purchasing a bunch of convertible debt, uh, micro cap convertible debt. Uh, mm -hmm. And just converting it, right? Doing dealer activity, toxic notes, same, same exact thing that all these people do. 
mm-hmm. and he just got hit with uh, a complete disgorgement, huge fine, um, and the and the uh, damages were actually written by a magistrate judge, which is technically not the judge. So a magistrate can't enter an order like that, and the, the judge needs to confirm it or order it, so order it himself or herself. And the judge just so ordered the magistrate's recommendation, which was very, very harsh. A lot of people didn't think that the judge was going to so order it, and the judge made no modifications. So that wow. sent a pretty big wave out to a yeah. lot of people because they're like, oh, okay, the judge isn't like they're not messing around. Like this is this is a huge. I, think, I want to say it was like over eighty million dollars he got fined. Oof. That's, or that might have been disgorgement. And then it was like another ten million in fines. It was a crazy, crazy amount. So I think hopefully soon it's going to be easier to assert these arguments and courts are going to be more receptive to it. I mean, every day the courts are more receptive to it, but sometimes mm-hmm. these take time. Like I said, like this court of appeals decision, that was, I want to say it was six years, seven years of 18, 19 decisions saying get lost. Like get <laughs> lost. Like seriously, it was like almost embarrassing. I mean, we've got, yeah. it's been brought up to us from other attorneys, like opposing counsel. Like they brought that up. They're like, oh yeah, cool. Good luck. And then all of a sudden the court of appeals comes down and everyone's like, oh, wait a second. These guys are right the whole time, right? <laughs> and it's kind of how we feel. Whoops. Like we're almost always the underdog. Uh, but but I, I really think that we have a good position at this point to uh, to do it. And it's developing, like I said, every day. I think that I think that there's just going to be a – it's going to be a quick, hard, fast turning point. I think at some mm-hmm. point it might not be for another year. Um, but I think it's going to be hard and fast. And I think all of our litigation that we're going through right now is going to, I, I think we're going to, I think things will pan out, whether it be, you know, one way or the other, I think things are going to pan out. Um, typical case for us, it's a, it's a, it, like I said, so we don't, we don't represent shareholders, we represent companies. Mm-hmm. And we assert these rights on behalf of companies because the company is the person who's in the transaction. They need to be in privity with the person who's violating the exchange act. Person violating the Exchange Act is the person entering into securities transactions absent dealer registration. So we need to assert these arguments on behalf of companies. The shareholder stuff, that would be a different claim, like what I was talking about before with that class action stuff. That would be a market manipulation, securities fraud type claim against, it would probably be against a lot of people, whatever, but that's a, it's a different substantive claim. So... Uh, generally, we'd have an issuer contact us. We'd, we'd field a call, right? They tell us about all their convertible debt, who they have debt with, whether mm-hmm. litigation's been commenced or not. And they make the decision, hey, are we going to go after these guys or are we going to wait for them to come after us? We always recommend, let's go. Like, let's go after them. Let's, let's not sit and wait. Let's paint the mm-hmm. picture on the wall first. Like, we get the first words if we file that complaint as opposed to them getting the first words. And it's very hard to convince a judge to say that somebody just gave you X amount of dollars and you don't want to pay them back. Right. Regardless of why it's hard to get yeah. of that in, in any circumstances. But that being said, sometimes when they bring this action, they might have converted three million dollars already and they the note was for two hundred thousand dollars. So then it, in that scenario, it might not might, might not be so bad. Right. But still, we always like to get the first word in. And that's mm-hmm. in those situations. We have a little bit, like I said, a little bit of a different approach uh, um, on the defensive as opposed to the offensive when we're filing that complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, every single case is different. Um, even though, you know, these these notes and these agreements are mostly the same. Sometimes they'll attach warrants in these notes. Um, warrants are their option contracts, basically their options. Um, they'll have an extra strike price and an expiration date. And the holder of the warrant can either exercise or not exercise. A lot of our clients deal with uh, cashless exercises and warrants. Warrants aren't supposed to be cashless. It's supposed to be a gamble. I want the strike mm-hmm. price to be this. I win if the price stock goes up. I lose if it goes down. So it's a riskier investment, obviously, but it could entitle you to a, have a bigger award. What a lot of these lenders do is they, they bury in these anti-dilution or anti-distribution clauses that make adjustments to the uh, formulas and the conversion rates, basically, in the, in the warrant, right? So mm-hmm. sure, on the face of it, it'll look like it's a 15 cent tr- uh, strike price. Okay, we never traded over 15 cents. Sure, throw the warrant in, right? You're never going to be in the money. We might be <laughs> in never the money. Never getting there. for you, you know. And that means we're doing well. We're growing if you're in the money. Mm-hmm. But they have this anti-dilution provision, and they know that you have convertible debt, right? Convertible debt triggers the anti-dilution. All of a sudden, you're giving shares out at a fraction of a penny, and all of a sudden, they're allowed to cashlessly exercise. 80 million or you know 10 million dollars worth of stock because you had some issuance 
because another lender put a conversion notice through. And now all of a sudden, not only are you dealing with your convertible debt, you're dealing with these warrants that have their own derivative liability against you guys with a conversion formula that I can't even like, you know, that most people couldn't even begin to describe. <laughs> like, these, these math formulas are insane. And, and the best part is they're always written in words too, right? You can easily just put this in a fraction and use numbers, but they'll never, ever do that. It'll only be in words. It's like a word math problem. It's and too it's, easy to see it that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want you to see it that way. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So, you know, depending on the case, it's, you know, we have a slightly different approach, but it's always that main, main thing is broker dealer. You're not allowed to do this. We're going to avoid this if we're suing you or you have no rights if you're suing us. So, you know, either it's a motion to dismiss or sometimes we might assert counterclaims depending on how much damage was done to our client. We'll assert counterclaims and then we'll move to dismiss under a different rule and we can mm -hmm. dismiss their claims. And then hopefully the only action sustained in the whole litigation is our claims against them. And we didn't even sue them. That's our goal, of course. And we take obviously very aggressive approaches and we, and we try and, you know, we do everything that we possibly can for our clients. Okay. Uh, another question in the chat that someone is asking, I'm, I'm assuming it's the, what is the cost to open up an investigation? So if someone comes to you and says, Hey, we have, you know, this is our issue at hand. Is it a flat fee? I guess I, I the, the question is kind of vague. So I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. So uh, it depends. So um, litigate, like for litigation purposes, I mean, there's not really an investigation, like for our, like a broker deal litigation, let's say they have convertible debt. There's not much of a, you know, an investigation that needs to be done. We know that we know pretty much every player in the game. We know who's doing what and when they're doing it, how they do it, um, who's behind it, how many other entities that person might have, because they always open up 15 shells and they call them, you know, one, two, three. They'll name it the same thing. It'll just be one, two, and three, as if mm -hmm. you know, a creative uh, mastermind behind it. As if no one's going to know that you're just you have seven entities doing the same thing, <laughs> right? So if you get fined with one, and yeah, only that one, whatever. But, um, but no, uh, generally our our litigation retainer. It depends. Like sometimes we'll work with our clients, but on average, I would say it's um, we usually reserve about thirty five grand for uh, for a, a note, a single note. Um, okay. depending on what's involved in that note, if there's a shit little, you know, if there's a lot of warrants in there, we might up that, right? Because it makes litigation a little bit more complex. Um, depending on what position you're in, if uh, if we only need to make two filings off of that, we might reduce that a little bit. If we need to make five filings, if the client wants a preliminary injunction or a TRO, then we're going to up that. Our retainer is really going to be based on what services do you need right now. And so what okay. are we, what are you going to, you know, and you, you, we just require our clients to reserve our time for what, need, what needs to be done right now. So it's very on a case by case basis. I mean, there are some times that there's just not much to be done and we can charge much less than that. And then there are other cases where we charge much more than that because they want much more done. Okay. Uh, another question. I don't know if you, if you, if you can answer it or, or not, it's kind of, kind of personal, but do you invest in the stock market? I mean, obviously you're on the other side of things being a, a litigation lawyer, the way you are, but involved in, in stocks, but. Do you invest in it at all? Are you a crypto fan? Are you, you know, big cap, small cap? Do you do any of that? I mean, someone's asking, so I'll ask it. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, uh, no, honestly, I'm not smart enough to do any of that. So, okay. I, uh, I listen, you're a lawyer. I, you you, you yeah. passed a couple of tests, all right? You're smart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I try and stay away. I Somebody, stay away. uh, Somebody is asking, what's the likelihood of disgorgement in one of these cases and how long do they usually take to conclude? Yeah, so disgorgement, I think I mentioned this earlier. I'm not sure if you were paying attention, but disgorgement is a remedy only available to the SEC. Disgorgement is very likely. If, if the SEC, I mean, you, you need to see it in the SEC complaint, they're probably going to seek disgorgement as a, in their prayer for relief. So if you look that up and you see disgorgement and you had shares in that company and you're harmed because of whatever that violator did, then you know that you're going to be entitled to something. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, uh, how long it takes, it takes a little while. Um, like okay. I said, like that, I'm, I'm a garbage. I mean, the SEC just takes a while in general forever. All right. They, they're going to investigate for a year or two years, commence the action. They're not going to miss a step. They're going to do everything perfectly. Execute. It's everything. not a fly-by-night investigation. No, it's not overnight. Not. It's going to yeah, be thorough. Dude, it's not. Yeah, they're not going to make any mistakes. Um, and if they're looking for disgorgement, and they they probably have enough evidence to get disgorgement. You just need to wait for the judge to order it. Okay. Um, but litigation usually takes years. So to answer your question, 
Uh, likelihood of disgorgement, yeah, I think it's pretty likely if the SEC is alleging it, they don't really allege things they can't prove. Um, how long does it usually take? It's usually a few years, I would say, on average, depending. But sometimes the sometimes the violator might settle because I know that they're you know it's they're dead to rights. Okay, uh, I'm just looking at the chat again here. I'm refreshing. One sec. Sorry about that. Crisis, yeah. in my office oh. so late they're coming to clean. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Like we said before, so Max is asking a question about a specific security. We're not gonna, you know, email email Gus and see if Gus writes you back or ask on Twitter. But I'm not gonna. We're not gonna talk about a specific security for the main reason of we don't know if Gus's firm is working on a case with or against specific securities or companies. So we're not gonna. You're not gonna go there, but. You know, people are asking certain companies have X number of shares and they want to convert. Should they sell? Gus is not going to give you Gus is not going to give you a buy or sell uh, advice. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Good try, though. <laughs> All right, Gus, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. I mean, you know, we went over an hour. Very informative. A lot of a lot of great stuff. Um, questions were great by the chat. Thank you for everybody who uh, did submit. If you want to contact Gus, you can contact Gus at the That's his email address. Uh, on Twitter, it's at GPP underscore ESQ. The Bazeal Law Firm, if you want to contact them, their main phone number, like I stated before, is 516-455-1500. Their website is the They have offices in New York, Florida, and Texas. And for episode 26 from New York, I'm going to say goodnight to everybody. Gus, thank you for coming on. Have a great night. Thanks. Have a good night.